All right, well, good evening. Hey, we're going to be in Genesis 36 tonight. Take your Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 36. The sad story of Esau is where we are in the Bible. Genesis chapter 36. We're going to tackle the chapter, although I will tell you ahead of time that we are not going to read every name in this chapter, because if you've read ahead, you know that this is a uh, chapter full of names. It's one of those genealogical chapters that you wonder, should I even spend time trying to read this? But actually, we're going to find some real benefit in going through this tonight, and we're actually going to take a route that will lead us back to Christmas tonight. Interestingly enough, from Genesis 36, we'll end up at the Christmas story. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we've come together tonight, we are hungry to hear from you. That's really why we're here, is to worship you, as Pastor Chris just mentioned, and, and to hear from you, Lord. We want to have ears to hear what you would say to us. We want to have a heart that is ready to commune with you in a special way. So we know you're going to speak because we're going to read the Bible tonight together, and we just want to have ears that are tuned to your spirit a heart that is hungry for the word of God that changes us. So may we take it in deeply into our hearts tonight and learn the lessons that you have for us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've gone there many times before, so I'm just gonna touch on it as we start the message. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses six through 13, if you haven't noted this before, 1 Corinthians 10, verses six through 13, written to a largely Gentile church, tells the Corinthians that we benefit from reading Old Testament stories. In fact, we're supposed to learn lessons from the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel and the, the frankly, dumb things that they did, and we're supposed to avoid them. And we're told to learn. We're, we're told to learn lessons about other people's mistakes and stumbles. And one of the things that the Bible gives you, especially when you read stories like this tonight and you kind of recap a life that has a hanging question mark over it is, I don't want to be like that. Some of you have a history where you've been through some bumps and bruises, maybe in your family, maybe, you know, in your growing up, and, and you're going to do the opposite now. You experience something that you know is not good. You want it, be, it to be different. For you, it could be just be, being a Christian. Maybe you didn't get raised in a Christian family and you want to be the trendsetter for a Christian family and maybe for you it was a rough upbringing or maybe it's a combination of both. Oftentimes what the Bible does is it gives us a chance to park and reflect on a major character of the scriptures. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 36 it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Now you'll note that Esau did become the father of a nation. He became the father of the Edomites. And we're going to touch on that as we move through the message. But we know that Esau was Jacob's older brother. And we know that this story has really centered itself for a lot of chapters on these two guys. This particular section in, in chapter 36 will close the book in one sense on the life of Esau. We're not really going to hear much more about him we will hear about Edom, and there's other places that touch on Esau, but as far as the book of, of Genesis is concerned, this is the closing chapter on a life. And there are closing chapters on lives. We all know that lives have an opening page and a closing page, at least as far as it concerns this earthly existence. You get two dates. You get a date that you're born and a date that you die, and you get a dash in between, 
And what you do with that will leave a record. Notice that the Bible says these are the records of the generations of Esau. There is a record. There's implications in the Bible that heaven keeps a record of things that we do. God keeps a record. God's eyes run to and fro upon the earth. And he wants to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. God keeps records. How all that works, I don't know. I don't know if he has the best supercomputer that was ever created. But there are records. And the Bible does this on several occasions. We've seen this actually many times already in Genesis. That there's a pause in, a, in the book. There's a chance to think these are the records of the generations of Esau. If I were to ask you to plug your name in there right there. These are the records of the generations of Michael Lance. These are the records of the generations of plug your name in. There's going to be a story told. The story is going to be about your influence. The story is going to be about the trajectory of your life. The story is going to be about generations that came from you. The, ge the story is going to be about influence, whether good or bad. You have one shot at this, folks, and there's going to be a record. Now, interestingly enough, there's a record that's mentioned in the next chapter, and when we move into chapter 37, the book of Genesis will take a turn, and the focus of Genesis will become a man named Joseph. Notice in chapter 37, look at verse 2. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. And then it says Joseph was 17 years of age, and we'll get into that as we move through Genesis. There's a record of the generations of Jacob. Jacob became Israel. He was renamed in an earlier chapter as he wrestled with God. And there's a record of the generations of Esau. And Esau became Edom. Jacob became Israel, a nation. Esau became Edom, a nation. Two nations were in the womb of Mama. Remember when she said, what's going on inside of me? There's like a wrestling match. And the answer was, there's two nations in your womb. There's a wrestling match going on because this is a foretaste of what will happen. And so we have a record here. And it's a chance of, for reflection. It's a chance for a student of Scripture, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ to, to pause and say, hmm, what was Esau's life about? What can we consider about this man named Esau since the Bible is really telling us to think about his records. Well, we know many things about him. We can see some positive things about Esau. We know that Esau was a man's man. We know he was a hunter. We know he had a big red beard. <laughs> we know he was really hairy, right? So he was a hairy guy. He was a, a skilled hunter. He was able to go out and hunt things, kill things, and prepare savory dishes. That's a pretty cool thing to have, right? Especially if you're his dad and he treats you to those savory dishes. So that's why he was favored by his father, because he could go out and hunt and, and, and kill game, and he had, he had strong skills in that way. But in many ways, Esau was what we might call easygoing Esau. He'd probably be a fun guy to hang out with. He'd probably be a fun guy to spend time with. He was probably maybe even fun to be around, but in the end, the thing that we realize about Esau, his... his demise, if you will, was that he did not think deeply about spiritual things. He was a man of the moment. He was a man who, when something was in front of him, he just acted upon it. Remember uh, early on when we see the account of these two brothers, he comes in from the field and Jacob's preparing stew. And uh, he goes, give me some of that red stuff, right? And he goes, and Jacob says, well, 
all I want is your birthright, and I'll give you some of this too. Well, what good is my birthright when I'm starving to death? Right? Well, he wasn't really starving to death. We don't know when he had the last meal. It could have been two hours ago. We're not sure. But what he did is he sold his birthright. And some people say, well, that's because of Jacob. Jacob was a conniver. Oh, Jacob was a conniver. But Esau is the one that put his birthright up for sale. I want you to think about that for a second. If Esau doesn't put it up for sale, Jacob doesn't get it. And there's a lot of people that give away what the Bible says is very precious, very dear. Uh, it's supposed to be considered holy and sacred. And in our culture and people within the walls of the church just simply give it away like it's nothing. And that was the problem with Esau. Esau was an immoral man. In fact, when we get a commentary in the Bible on Esau, and one of the best ways to understand uh, and come to a conclusion about a person in the Bible is let the Bible interpret the Bible. And of course, we have this telling story. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go there for a second. Hebrews 12. Turn there in your Bible with me. And let's see what the writer of Hebrews says. We'll remind ourselves of this. But... I want to just read a little bit as you guys find Hebrews 12. It says, The concept of delayed gratification had no place in Esau's thinking. He lived for what was before him, be it the hunt for a meal or the company of women. Esau was singularly unreflective. Singularly unreflective. He had no sense of the spiritual, no eye for the unseen. If you were to quote 2 Corinthians 5, 7 to Esau, we walk by faith and not by Sight, he would know nothing of that. He had no vision. He had only earthbound dreams. Do you know some people like this? You, you sit there and try to tell them about some deeper things, some profound things, some things that have to do with the soul and the spirit, and it feels like you're talking to a wall. They just don't seem to get it. Yet a big part of their existence, what it means to be made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, is to get a sense of the spiritual. I think we can see that all around us, even in uh, areas of the world where they're off, where there's uh, polytheistic religion and false religion. At least we see still that there's a sense in man that there's something higher than him. Even a small percentage today of, of people worldwide are atheists. But for, for Esau, even though he may have said, you know, tongue-in-cheek that he believed, he never thought deeply about holy things. Do you? What causes a person to think deeply about that which is holy? What causes a person to think deeply about transcendent things, things above? Do you know the people who think deeply about those kinds of things are often the people that have come to the pinnacle of worldly success? Because they're forced to ask the question, if I get to the top of a hill, if I have a bank account that has big numbers in it or lots of trophies on the shelf and still I sense an emptiness in my soul. Does that mean that I was made for something higher than just physical accomplishments, conquest, whatever people tend to do? And so he didn't think deeply about these things. He blithely sold his birthright for Jacob's stew with the, one writer says, with the facetious rhetoric of starvation. He wasn't really starving. It was, he did something very dumb. He gave away something very precious. What does it take for you to sell away what's most important? You know, the, 
the carrot is dangled in front of us all the time, right? The world tells you, well, you don't need to really worry about, you know, what you do here or there. It's not a big deal until you find out. And let me tell you from experience, it's a big deal. What God says is sacred he doesn't say it just to say it. He's not some killjoy up in the sky trying to ruin all your fun. He actually knows what's right and true and good. He knows what's going to soothe your conscience. He knows what's going to cause you to rest easy on your pillow at night because he wired you this way. And so here we are, and we're looking at a man who was around the holy things. After all, he's born into this line that is going to make up the chosen people of God. But this writer goes on to say he cared not at all about the covenant's future glorious promise of Canaan and a multitude of descendants. Look at Hebrews 12, look at verse 14. It says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, Hebrews 12, 14, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. This is for us. This is for us to read and heed that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. You see, it wasn't just about Esau. It's about his, his lineage, the records of his generations. Many became defiled because of what he did. That there be no immoral or godless man or person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, something else that he lost, by his conniving brother, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it, he sought for it with tears. If you turn back to the book of Genesis, you remember the story, Jacob acts like he's Esau. He goes in, he puts the fur on his arms, he tries to smell like his brother and so forth, and he is able to dupe his father. And his father gives the blessing to Jacob. And when Esau realizes what his brother does, he, he says, Father, in tears, don't you have a blessing left for me? And the blessing that dad gives Esau is not a good one. It's nowhere near in comparison to what Jacob received. You see, the Bible says that people who, who uh, live their lives this way, they lack a spiritual perception. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually appraised. If you've ever had a piece of property appraised, you know what an appraiser does. He assesses value. He will look at your property, if you're going to put it up for sale or you're going to go get a loan, and he will determine the value of that property. The natural man cannot properly appraise spiritual value. So he looks at what you do that you read your Bible, that you pray, that you go to Bible studies, that you share your faith, and he thinks it's ridiculous because he doesn't know how to assess value. And one of the things that you and I need to learn to do is how to value things the way God values them, how to value people the way God values them. You're gonna spend the rest of your life doing that, but let me tell you right now, if you can begin to see life through God's eyes, you'll be doing really well. The word says that Esau actually despised his birthright. That's Genesis 25, 34. He didn't just push it away. He despised it. He put it up for sale. And then when he wept, when he lost the blessing, it says he didn't find the place of repentance. 
He was sorry for what he lost, but not sorry for how he got there. Would you please hear that? He was sorry for what he lost, but not sorry for how he got there. There's a lot of people in the moment when they realize they've lost something because of their bad behavior, they say, oh no! There's a lot of people behind bars tonight who go, oh no, I don't like what's happening to me. But unless there's godly repentance, they don't really change. They just don't like the consequences of what's happened to them by their poor choices. That was Esau. He didn't really put it together. He didn't really get it. And so he was told, you're going to live, Genesis 27, 39, his father prophesies, he says, you're going to be away from the fertility of the earth. You're going to be away from the dew of heaven. You're going to live by your sword. And so this is Esau. Back to Genesis 36, look at verse 2. Esau took his wives, so you got the records in, in 36, 1, and here he took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. He had Ada, her name means ornament, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and um, uh, well, I, what I, the way I'd read this is O Holy Bama, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. He took wives from the daughters of Canaan. Now, you, you could be reading your Bible and you, you go, well, you may not even park there, so what? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Canaanites, if you just start to think about what that means, this is put in the language of what is considered derogatory. This, this is a comment about the man. Do you remember when um, Abraham was sending off Isaac to get a bride in Genesis 24? He made Eleazar his servant promise that he would not take wives or take a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites. He said, please. And he made him grab his inner thigh. Do you remember when we were there in Genesis 24? It's around verses three or four. And he said, look, you are going to swear by God that you will not pick a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Now that was important for the line that would lead to the Messiah, but it was also important for practical reasons because the Canaanite women worshipped what? Other gods. And even Solomon's heart was turned away from the true God, one of the wisest, smartest men that ever lived, because he married outside the proper lines and even, we would argue, outside the faith. In fact, his wives turned his heart away from God. Let me tell you, young people, this is very important for you to hear. Who you marry has huge implications for your life. And if you decide to marry outside the faith, put your seatbelt on really tight. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God can't redeem a situation. I'm not saying that God can't work things together for good. But I am saying this. If you decide not to do things God's way, if you start making decisions, you say, oh, well, he's so cute. I'm sure he'll become a Christian. She's so pretty. Well, that may be true. But what you want is beauty on the inside. Amen? Amen. Beauty on the outside is not bad either. Don't get me wrong. And so what he did is he married daughters of Canaan. And look, 
he took not just a wife, he was also a polygamist. He took wives, look at verse 2, from the daughters of Canaan, and he took a woman whose name was Oholibaba. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on. So you have, you have a Hittite here, and you have a Hivite. And then he had base, base math. Uh, her name, I think, means perfume. Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. And, you know, he did this because he realized his parents were unhappy about these Canaanite women. In fact, we're told in one section of the scriptures that we've just recently read that the, these Canaanite wives were driving mom and dad crazy. In fact, mom says at one point that I almost like want to die because of these women. Now, you guys, you guys know that when it goes bad with the in-laws, <laughs> sometimes you want to just head for the mountains, right? It can be tough when you're not on the same page spiritually. Some of you run into this at holidays. You, you have a very, you know, uh, specific thing that you want to focus on at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and, and a family get-together happens and all it takes is one sour apple. All right, if we got to pray, Holy Joe, it's Christmas, would you speed it up? I want to hear about Jesus at Christmas. And you know that your decisions, the records of your generation, will be marked down. Some of you can't, you can't imagine this right now. You can't imagine that 30, 40 years are going to go by and there's going to be a record of your generation. But I got news for you. It happens. The clock just keeps ticking for all of us. Pastor Michael, I know this is hard. I was 16 at one point. I was. Keyword was. And so he did this. And he said, well, mom and dad don't like my Canaanite wives, so I'll marry an Ishmaelite. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not a great career move because she is of mixed blood too because Ishmael is a product of Abram and Hagar who's Egyptian. And that was a whole nother story. So he kind of went halfway with it. He said, well, maybe this will make mom and dad happy. It shows you that the guy was somewhat sensitive, but he was still not getting it. So look at verse 5. And Oholibama bore Jeush, and Jalem and Korah, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan while he was still in what would be the promised land, or what was the promised land. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle, verse 6, all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. So he left, he married outside the line, and then he left the land of promise. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. We're reminded once again that he's a nation. These then are the records of the generations of Esau. Notice how you have bookends here from verse 1 to verse 9. The father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Now I will say to you that if you check out the names of the wives uh, and I'm not going to spend a bunch of time here but I was looking in James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on um, Genesis and he he does note here and I'll show it to you later if 
you want to look at it, but let me just take a, a moment here. It says that the only difficulty with the first account in Genesis 36 is that the names of the wives differ from the names in Genesis 26, 34. Two wives are named there. And 28, 9, one wife is named. These two earlier passage yield, passages yield the following names. Judith was the daughter of Barry the Hittite. These are his wives listed earlier. Bazmath, daughter of the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael. Yet in Genesis 36, 2 and 3, it's Ada instead of Judith, Oholibama instead of Bazmath. And uh, here's what he says. He says, uh, Ada was, is still called the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, daughter of Anna and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemath the daughter of Ishmael. The earliest explanations of, these, of this difficulty is that each wife had more than one name. One perhaps for living in the culture of Canaan, the other for living in Hittite culture. Ada is the same as Basemath of Genesis 26-34. Both are identified as the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Similarly, the base math of Genesis 36.3 is the same as Mahaloth, for both are said to be the daughter of Ishmael. And this leaves Oholibama to be identified with Judith. And I may have messed that up when I said, said it earlier. Though in this case, the wives are said to be descended from different fathers. It is probably the case that the two fathers are actually one also. They too having been known by different names. And so it was true and we see this in ancient culture that people did go by a couple of different names. If you notice that, I bring it up. If you had no question about that, then don't worry about it. And so these, this second highlight uh, has to do with the marriages of Esau. He, he made bad decisions. He left, the, he left the proper line. He left the land. And there's even a dispute among commentators as to whether or not the land couldn't sustain both of them or whether this town wasn't big enough for the two of us. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it was more about that they thought that the herdsmen would start to fight and so forth. It was a way of saving face, but not so much that the resources lacked. I'll let you decide for yourself there. But here's how he goes on. So... Here's one thing I just want to say about Esau. We don't know how Esau's story actually ends. In fact, uh, my wife, when she was creating the slide, she said, uh, with the picture, did Esau live to be an old man? And I said, yeah, it's, it's clear that he lived for a while. I, don't, I didn't find he lived this many years. Uh, I didn't look terribly hard, but I, I don't think it's there. But I will say this. Um, Esau, Esau's story has a question mark over it. We don't really know where Esau stood before the Lord. The positive sign is, remember when Jacob came and humbled himself, he forgave his brother. He had 400 men with him, and those 400 men, they looked very, like maybe they wanted to be violent. But when Jacob bowed before Esau, Esau fell on his neck and they wept together. Pastor Chris taught us uh, last time that at the end of 35, they bury their father together. So there's some positive signs about the guy. But does Hebrews 12, 15 through 17 tell us that the overarching theme of his life was he was an immoral, godless man and we're to see to it that we don't follow in his footsteps? Or was that just a portion of his life? You see, when we start asking questions like this, here's what we got to do. We start asking, well, 
There's a question mark lingering over this life, so I don't know. Please hear this. Don't live your life under a question mark. Don't, don't have some future generation try to figure out whether or not you were saved. Please don't do that. If you're going to be in, would you be in? If you're going to be a Christian, then be a Christian. Don't have people guessing where you stand and who you are. Don't live on the fringes. Don't sit on the bench. Who, who of you wants to sit on the bench? I want to be in the game, man. I don't want to be a spectator. It's hard when people live their lives and die with a question mark. You know, one writer says, it's always this way with people who are of this stripe. He says, if you will not value spiritual things and give them first place in your life, then the merely physical will flood and dominate what you are and what you do. And your story sometimes will end with a question mark. Now the Bible says, you will know them by their what? Their fruits, plural. And so if people have to guess about your fruits, you might want to take another look at where you are. This is a poignant section I want to read to you. And I would ask you to please listen closely. R. Kent Hughes comments. Genesis is ambiguous about Esau. The beginning of his life was certainly graceless, but he appeared as a different man after the 20-year hiatus while Jacob was with his uncle. Certainly his demotion from covenant bearer did not mean that he was excluded from the benefits of the covenant. Personally, he said, I've seen this pattern and ambiguities of Esau's chronicle traced in the lives of men I've buried over the years. They were born to godly though imperfect parents. Growing up, they were nurtured and catechized in God's word. But Christian things meant little to them. Heaven was far off, disconnected from real life, and as they, as they matured, they came to despise their heritage, maybe not overtly, but by neglect and dismissiveness. I will tell you on the Bible Answer Show today, we got two phone calls. Both those phone calls told the story of people walking away from their faith. One was a minister. One was a 28-year-old young man who's decided that he doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. Yet he is complaining to his mom that Christians are celebrating a pagan holiday when they celebrate Christmas. And my response was, why does he care? Why does he care? If he's told you that the God of the Bible is not true, then why does he critique you and want to get into a debate about the origins of Christmas? It shouldn't even matter to him, but it matters to him because he wants to prove a point. He somehow wants to make himself feel better by saying that you're wrong, Mom. And the minister, I understand, he's looking at stuff that's happening in the news, children dying because of war. Sadly, that's always been the case of human existence, hasn't it? And he's walking away, apparently, from whatever faith he had as well. Please hear me well. Some people despise their heritage, not, heritage, not overtly, but, be, but by neglect and dismissiveness. They dismiss the deeper things. Some were ignorant despisers, others cultured despisers to their parents great sorrow they married outside the faith and then went with the flow of culture in raising their children so that they became de facto pagans 
pursuing and even attaining the American dream. But as these men passed through midlife, the emptiness of it all began to pummel their souls. They repented and came to faith. When they could, they made amends, but their families did not follow them. So these men stayed at the fringes of the church, sometimes seeking counsel, sometimes engaging in benevolences, attending church irregularly and often alone, inarticulate to their faith. And when they did, the family, when they, when they, excuse me, when they died, the family asked for a funeral in the church in respect to their father's wishes. And when I preached, says Hughes, it was to ignorant, unbelieving hearts, Edomites. And folks, I have seen that played over and over and over again. I've stood up here too many times with someone who has left this planet with a question mark over their soul. You don't want to live that way. And you certainly don't want to die that way. And so these are the records of the generations of Esau. And when you think about it, there's a lot to reflect upon and a lot to consider. And if you'll let the Bible teach you what it's trying to teach you, if I'll let the Bible teach me what it's trying to teach me, I will be the wiser for it, and I will have acquired wisdom. And so <clears throat> Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. That's verse 8 from the ESV. And of course, we're told again of these generations of Esau. Esau did a lot of settling. He settled for second, third, fourth best. And I pray, of course, as I uh, urge us all that we don't settle for anything but God's best. The second section in verses 10 and following in Genesis 36 tell the story of two of uh, Esau's sons and then 10 of his grandsons. I'm not going to read the list here, but that's what you could put as a heading. There's two sons mentioned Two of Esau's sons in verse 10, Eliphaz and Reuel. And then there's a whole list of sons that come from them, 10 in all. You'll see some familiar names in there like Amalek in verse 12 is mentioned. Um, there's, uh, there's different uh, lines that are mentioned there and I'm not gonna get into all the genealogy there. In summing up verses 20 and 30, which have a lot of names in them as well, uh, verses 20 through 30. One uh, way to just categorize this is Esau had displaced, displaced the native people, had married into a leading family. The picture here is one of violent invasion by Esau's clan living by his sword, followed by the absorption of the native populace into the descendants of Esau. In other words, Esau was very, um, I guess, materialistically prosperous, you'd say. In fact, what we're going to learn is that while uh, Israel under Jacob, as they, the family goes to Egypt and ends up under Egyptian bondage, Esau is thriving. The Edomites are thriving. They have kings before Israel ever has kings. They seem to be dominating uh, and kind of imbibing people groups. In verse 31, we have a list of kings that come from Esau's line. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before 31, any king reigned over the sons of Israel. So you could see, in some ways, if Jacob got word about his brother, he, would, he might say, sheesh, my, my brother's done so much better than I. 
He's got kings and, and lands and, and all of these things coming from the group. And the list of kings are there. You have Bela and Jobab in verse 33, Husham, 35, Hadad. Uh, skip down to 36, you have Samla, Shaul. And the last name is an interesting name. When Shaul died, verse 38, you have Baal or Baal Hanan. When you see the name Baal, what does it make you think of? A false god. Why would one of the, na- why would one of the kings of Edom be named after Baal? Well, because certainly by this time, there's a, there's a degeneration. There's all of this, this taking in of, of the pagan ways, and now you have kings that are even named after false gods. And so he dies in verse 39, and Hadar becomes king in his place. And then the final section of this particular uh, chapter, verses 40 through 43, as we round out chapter 36, emphasizes the spheres of ownership and influence of the leading Edomite families. Notice it says in verse 40, now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau. And you have the chiefs mentioned there, ending in verse 43, Chief Magdal, Chief Eram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. And so the story concludes. What do we know of the Edomites as the Bible unfolds? What do we learn about them? Just some scriptures that we'll go through um, as we move through the Bible and we'll conclude in the New Testament as I told you we would end up at Christmas. Here's what we have. Uh, The sad reality is that Esau's descendants became the chronic enemies of Jacob's descendants. Edomites battled Israelites. Some 500 years after Esau's departure, when Moses was leading Israel in the exodus out of Egypt, the Edomites refused the peaceful overtures of Moses, would not allow Israel to pass through their territories. That's recorded in Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21. 1 Samuel 14, 47 says that Saul, the first king of Israel, had to battle, uh, had to battle with Edom, 1 Samuel 14, 47. 2 Samuel 8.14 says that David was able to subdue the Edomites, but the most infamous abuse of Edom toward Israel was during Israel's deportation to Babylon, when the Edomites blocked the crossroads, cutting off the route of the fugitive Israelites and delivered them back to the Babylonians. Can you imagine that? The, The Israelite... Israelites that were being deported and actually had a chance to go back to the promised land were cut off by the Edomites and returned back to basically being in bondage. How's that for how your brother treats you? How's that for a forgotten history and no sense of the covenant promises? Turn to the book of Psalms. This, this story gets a little attention in your Bible. Psalms, Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Here's the story when they treated Israel poorly, and of course, you can tie this all back to not really focusing on your heritage, not passing down the stories. Folks, think about it. Israel was told over and over again, teach these things to your children. Teach them the feast. Teach them where you came from. Teach them what the Lord's done for you so that future generations will worship the Lord. Well, Esau started a bad trend. 
And by the time 500 years had passed, the Edomites could care less about the Israelites. They didn't care that there, there was brothers at one point in this line. It meant nothing to them anymore. There was no sense of the covenant. And so the psalmist writes in Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, and they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They said something like this. Sing us one of those worship songs you guys, said, you guys used to sing in the temple. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my, roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, when they saw Babylon destroying us, you know what the Edomites said? They said, raise it. Raise it to its very foundation. Destroy it all. I think that's a lost sense of your history. When you sit there and you've been connected to that family tree and you say destroy that temple, destroy that holy place, we don't care. We just want to ransack it when you're done. That's when you've lost a sense of the spiritual. There's a book in your Bible called the book of Obadiah. Anybody ever been to Obadiah? You been to Obadiah lately? All right, everybody turn to Obadiah. You say, Pastor Michael, where's Obadiah? It's only one chapter, so it's extremely difficult to find. So what I would just say to you is just act like you know what you're doing. Just kind of search around, look on at your neighbor, ask for a page number. Actually, the book of Obadiah is between Amos and Jonah, all right? One chapter. Here's what you could do. This, this coming week, if you have Christian friends, say to your friends, when, talk about your devotional life and say, I read a book of the Bible this morning, man. Like, what did you read? Obadiah. They'll have no idea that it's only like 21 verses. The whole book. Here's what it says. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning who? Edom. That's from Esau. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. This is an address to Edom or the Edomites. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling places. By the way, some of the roots of the genealogies end up settling in Petra. And that's modern day what? Jordan. This is where these people come from or where they ended up settling. And they lived in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? There's pride. Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves, thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. Skip down to verse eight. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? And understanding uh, from the mountains of Esau, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon, in order that everyone may be cut off from your mountain, from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame 
and you will be cut off forever. You know, in a classic passage in the New Testament, it says, Jacob have I loved, remember it? Esau have I hated. And people read Romans 9, verse 13, and they say, oh, God is not fair, I don't understand it. And the quote comes from the book of Malachi. Long after these individuals are dead, it's not speaking of the individuals, it's speaking of who? The nations. And God had a very dim view of Edom because of what Edom did to Israel. Israel being the covenant people, they had no mercy when they were trying to leave Egypt in the Exodus. They had no mercy when they were trying to go back to the promised land from Babylon. And God said, because you've treated my people that way, I'm taking that personally. And I, have a, I despise you for what you've done to my people. This is how we can see God's love for his own people. He, he takes it personally. Now, to Isaiah 21, we're almost done. Hang in there. Isaiah 21, look at verse 11. There's an oracle spoken against Edom in the book of Isaiah, as many nations are addressed in the book, as if you were with us when we went through Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 21, look at verse 11. There's an oracle, this is a heavy message concerning Edom, 21:11 of Isaiah. The oracle concerning Edom, one keeps calling to me from Seir, that's where he settled, Watchmen, Isaiah 21, 11. How far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire, and come back again. Here's, here's the response. I don't really know. How far gone is the night? I don't know. There could be some dark, more darkness. There could be light. Everybody turn to Isaiah 63. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to physically return to the earth, Isaiah 63, and he's going to pass through this area known as Edom in the area of modern-day Jordan. Take a look at Isaiah 63. This is verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? Isaiah 63, 1. The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And the question is, why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads the, in the wine press. And he says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. He's going to pass through Isaiah 63, 1, the area of Edom, and I take that quite literally. And then I mentioned Malachi 1, 1 through 4. Just write that down for your notes, which is picked up in the book of Romans. I want to take you all the way to Matthew, and we're done. Matthew chapter 2. So you guys know the king that was ruling in the time when the wise men saw the star in the east, he was named, you remember his name? Herod. He's known as Herod the Great. History tells us Herod was a whopping four foot four. I don't know how that strikes you, but, you know, four foot four. But he built uh, incredibly significant buildings, the Hippodrome, the, his castle, many incredible things. Um, and so here's, here's how the story goes. Now, after Jesus 
Matthew 2.1 was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. You have a story of two kings here. One, one king is named Jesus. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And the star is seen in the east. And they come to another king. His name is Herod. He thinks he's the king of the Jews. And one of the kings, Jesus, the king that's born, comes from the line of Jacob. And the other king comes from the line of Esau. Do you know that in the Christmas story, an Edomite king is wrestling against a Jewish king? And the story comes full circle. And this Edomite king, you've heard it said of, the, of Herod that he was Idumean. That means he was not Jewish. He was of Edomite stock, and he was a ruthless man. In fact, as Matthew 2 unfolds, he kills the babies in Bethlehem to try to destroy the Christ child. And from the decisions of Esau many moons ago, people say, oh, what I decide today has no bearing on the future. You want to bet? You want to bet? You may not even realize the ripple effects that come from your life's decisions. And one day, brothers and sisters, the record will be revealed. Someone might say, let the record show. And maybe people like Esau and people like Michael and people who are in this room and people who listen to my voice later will get a glimpse of the ripple effect that came out from one life. Just one life. And Esau didn't care. Let me have some of that stew. I'm hungry. I'm going to starve to death. Who cares if you have a birthright if you're starving? And then he loses his blessing. And then he marries outside the line. And then he leaves the promised land. And he X'd out his future generations from the covenant. Everybody hear that? Esau married his children and grandchildren out of the covenant line. Oh my goodness. Now I care about what grandpa does. Amen? And so, all of a sudden, the Bible takes us to this story. And they say, well, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Matthew 2, 2. For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And Herod, when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, because when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. People started dying. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, where it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi, ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Just write in your Bible, you liar. <laughs> and having heard uh, the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them. Until it came and stood over where the Christ child, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And they came, notice, into the house. He's not in the stable or the cave. He's in a house now. This is later. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. And so we know what happened afterwards. It's the wicked deed of this king when he kills the babies in Bethlehem. Jesus was preserved because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And may I just submit to you as we close, you have a chance, a choice, to serve one of two kings. You can serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords, or you can serve the prince of this world, or you can serve yourself, or any combination thereof, and you get to decide. But you don't just decide for yourself, brothers and sisters. Your decisions will affect future generations. And I pray that we'll all be wise in our decision-making. Father, thank you for this night tonight. We know this is an incredibly insightful chapter, maybe even a heavy chapter, but a good one because it really causes me to reflect on my life and my decisions. The little ones I make, the ones that I think that are little that are big, and the big ones I'm going to make or have already made. Thank you that you've been so gracious to us. Even when we've made poor decisions, you've redeemed those for your good purposes. And there are some in here who have incredible stories that even though they did things the wrong way, you still turned it around for good. But Lord, it's, it's our opportunity right now to make good decisions that will follow you. And that's what you told, you know, the first ones you called, you said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I pray that you'll help us to follow you. If your head and heart is bowed tonight and you want to follow him, you want to follow the true king, would you decide tonight, you know, being a Christian is not just about a ticket to heaven. It's about a decision to call Jesus Lord of your life, Lord of your decisions. It's not always easy to be a Christian, but it is right and it is good and it is true. And my prayer for all of us tonight, Lord, is that we'll follow you with everything that we have. And when we skin our knee and fall down and make a wrong turn, you'll get us back on the path. If you need to trust Christ for the first time tonight, would you do it? Confess him as your Lord and Savior. If you need to rededicate your life, if this has spoken to you about maybe your own Christian journey and how you've kind of been laxed about your decisions as they relate to the Bible and your future, I pray that you'll strongly consider the words that have been shared tonight. Father, whatever's been of you, that people hold on to it. Whatever's not been profitable and and just simply been from me, let them forget it. But we pray that you'll be glorified in the precious souls here tonight and our Christmas season would be one of light, one of truth, and one of following you closely. In Jesus' name, amen.